When the legendary CEO, Hunter Harrison, took over as Canadian National Railway's CEO, he was doing so after the company had been privatized in 1995. His task was daunting and a major turnaround on his hands. Or was it? By introducing the precision-scheduled railroading philosophy, changes were happening. Shareholders took notice, too, including the biggest stakeholder, Bill Gates. But something was amiss. There were still problems. The old culture where people showed up for three or four hours, but getting paid for eight was still the norm throughout the organization. While Hunter Harrison never liked consultants, a dream team of culture whiz kids made him an offer he could not refuse. One of those whiz kids was Judy Johnson, one of the co-authors of the book Switch Points, the best book I've ever read on applying the tools and frameworks for creating a changed culture. Culture and organizational health has been a hot topic over the past decade and beyond, but much of the writing has been more fizzle and fuzzy lingo on how to impact change, but not the case with the book Switch Points, nor the work of Judy Johnson and her team at Canadian National Railways. While the Hunter Harrison legacy lives on today, I did not want this backstory to be missed. I guarantee you'll gain valuable insights from this interview. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our visit with Judy is right around the corner. Again, our guest is Judy Johnson, the co-author of Switch Points, the book that describes the tools and frameworks her consulting firm at the time used in CN's major turnaround when the legendary CEO Hunter Harrison was at the helm. Now, the very first thing I told Judy when we connected was that Switch Points was the best book I have ever read on this topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a hard time believing it's the best book, um, but but I do I do love this book. I loved writing it. I loved um, working with CN through this process. And the thing that I think um, I'm most proud of in it is that we you know we look at culture and and behavior and um, are able to create very tangible results coming out of it. And so I think that's where a lot of a lot of people get disinterested in culture, even though they know it's important uh, part of the way we do business is it's so hard often to measure. And so to be able to make that link back to, you know, as behaviors change and as culture changes, you can measure it and you can see improvements, financial improvements and, you know, non-financial improvements. By the way, again, we're talking about the book Switch Points. Feel free to give a shout out to your three uh, co-authors because, I mean, it was a a concerted effort uh, between all four of you, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Th- there was there was four of us. Um, two of the the CN champions who really championed this multi year culture change effort, uh, Les Dakins and Peter Edwards, and then two of us on the consulting side, Ned Morse, my fellow partner, and myself, um, as well as twenty consultants over the period of those three years, and many many leaders inside CN who who helped make this all happen. So. Now, I want to give a shout out to Howard Green. So earlier in the year, 
And I want to go ahead and just state the year, the year 2021. One of the first books I read was Railroader by Howard Green. And I've never worked in the railroad industry. I have no clients. So it's just been an industry I know very, very little uh, about. So he writes about what I consider now to be one of the greatest CEOs ever, a four-time CEO, not just a four-time CEO, but a CEO who turned around four railroads, four organizations. Try that, Bill Gates. Try that, Steve Jobs. Try that, Jeff Bezos. Well, this book is centered on your all's work at Canadian National Railways. So my question, oh, by the way, the number one shareholder to this day is still Bill Gates. So this is not, for, for those in the continental U.S., may not be as familiar with CN, maybe CSX and other uh, other railroads like that, but maybe not CN. So I wanted to to give that uh, that that introduction quickly to CN. How did this work come to be for you guys? Yeah, it's a great question. So this originally started with connections that we had within the company where uh, some of the senior leaders were seeing, you know, seeing an opportunity to improve performance. They had, um, if you if you know the Hunter story, you know Hunter joined um, joined the railroad um, and became CEO and really did a lot to improve performance um, on the railroad. Uh, but th- he still saw opportunities through through technology and process improvements. He made huge gains. Um, but there was still opportunity from a people side. And so they were seeing things like um, people leaving early, people coming in slow, um, cars sitting in yards, not being moved, you know, kind of lagging performance, if you will, um, that were more on the people side. So we had an opportunity to start a small piece of work in one of the rail yards up in Eastern Canada um, to to work with the leaders there. And, And that's where we started to see what could be a larger culture change. That's interesting because in both your book and Railroader and even some other uh, books on Hunter Harrison, there's a story of him going to one of the the railroad yards and talking to one of the the superintendents or supervisors, wondering where is everybody, and well, they're they're home. And apparently, CN and even other railroads would be paying people eight hours for just four hours. Uh, of work, which does not make sense to me. But here's a question. Hunter did not like consultants. No. (laughs) So how how did you, how did you make that happen? (laughs) Well, let's be clear. I I still think even through this, he still didn't like consultants, right? Okay. So we never really won him over, but, um, but basically, you know, we we talked to him as a CEO, as a businessman. And when we looked at what we, you know, we firmly believed, we thought that we could deliver, we we talked to him about the need for culture improvement and how culture could actually have a financial impact on the bottom line, that he, we could improve performance and thus improve results. And we put our money where our mouth was. So we offered up to do three pilots for him um, and said, you know, if any of those three pilots fail, we 
you won't pay for them. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll pay a very minor, you know, minimum about like half our cop, half our um, normal fees, right. Just enough to, to barely cover. Um, and so it was a pretty good deal. You know, um, the, the, the upside um, opportunity was really high and the downside risk for him was pretty low. And, and that's how we got the opportunity to demonstrate the value. I want to get into some of the big ideas in the book, switch points, before we do, can can we put a name to your work? Uh, I know, like today, I'm, a lot of us are familiar with the work of Patrick Lencioni and his organization called Table Group. So I think the name there is Organizational Health. What, what's what's the term that your firm used for this work? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so for this work, this was really... Um, performance, we talked about it as a performance catalyst, um, as a kind of a jumping off point for performance. Now, um, we, we still talk about the same sort of things. Um, but 10 years later, um, I really see it more around organizational agility because a lot of the basics and a lot of the things that we were teaching leaders and teams to do allowed them to address whatever issues came up in a very quick and effective way and to be agile and adjust to, to, you know, to whatever was coming at them. Judy, we're going to be talking about three to four to five different major frameworks that are outlined in this book, which again, they are outstanding. I mean, you've got to get the book just because of the, the visuals, uh, and again, the frameworks, I mean, they are so, so, I'm trying to think of a word practical, but before we jump into those frameworks, can we give a brief definition of precision railroading? Now, before someone may say, well, I'm not in the railroad industry, it doesn't matter because there, I think there are five key pillars to precision railroading and they apply whether you're in e-commerce, uh, food service, uh, healthcare, fintech, doesn't matter. But again, before we get started, what what is or what was precision railroading at CN? Yeah, precision railroading, what, what Hunter brought to CN was, was really a different way to look at railroading. So um, what it did is prior to that, they would look at getting trains from yard A, you know, from a, a yard in Quebec to a yard in Louisiana and how long would it take to get that train there? Um, and they were estimating in days, right? Um, and, and and not estimating really effectively um, to today's standards. Um, and that's historically how it went. Well, what precision railroading did was say, what really matters is the customer and the customer's car. And so that, you know, the, the rail car, right? That single car on a train of a hundred cars. And so more important is, let's estimate how long it will take us to get that rail car from Quebec to Louisiana and the, and figure out how to tighten that so that they, they could compete with the trucking industry at the time. And in fact, um, got really, really sharp at being able to estimate those, those times and, and shrunk the, the estimated times from days, you know, within a day or two down to within hours. So really impressive work from both technology and process improvements um, that they did in the railroad to be able to make that change. And then the end result was there's what's called the operating ratio. It's all the expenses divided by revenue. 
And I think it might have been before he came to CN that operating ratio was in the 90 uh, percent range. And he brought it down. I think he brought it down to the low 60s and it might have eventually gotten down to the upper 50s. I mean, just think of the now now you're in the billions. So just one percent of a billion (laughs) is is huge. And so that's the impact. Now, that's a great segue because he brought all the tools. He brought all the know how to make this happen. But there's that missing ingredient. There's that people missing ingredient called performance uh, organizational agility, which I'm taking notes, Judy. (laughs) And the first tool, in my opinion, the tool of all tools is DCOM. And I should say DCOM TM, but I love DCOM. I've even kind of rewarded it uh, for some businesses I work with. But what is DCOM? And why is it so important? Yeah, DCOM is a great tool for leaders. It's so simple. It's so sticky. It, it really stays with you. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're you're using it in some fashion. Um, it, it's it really asks four questions around performance. So if you want to um, ask yourself, like, why is this performance not happening? Why are you, you know, why are we either seeing, you know. Um, performance that you didn't expect or, or behaviors on the job that you didn't expect, or you're not seeing some behaviors, whether that's coming to work on time or, you know, delivering timely projects or meeting behaviors. DCOM basically asks, does the person have direction? Does the person have competence? Do they have the skills and ability to do that work? Um, do they have the opportunity? And with opportunity, what that question is really asking is, do they have the tools and the resources and the decision rights to be able to to take that, to do that work? And then finally, the motivation, which there's a whole lot that sits behind that M, but essentially, is that person motivated? And if all four of those things are in place, the person's more likely to engage in that behavior. If one of those is missing, that helps the leader say, well, I don't know that I was really clear on direction. Maybe I need to go back. You know, maybe we need to go back and get really clear there. Or no, that's pretty good, but it's really on the motivation side. We've been talking about the value to the organization. We've never once talked about why that individual's behavior is really important and what why it's important for the individual, how they contribute to the overall good of the org. Judy, I'm going to bet when you walk into consulting clients, I bet if all they did was implement and execute DCOM effectively up and down throughout the organization, also with their suppliers, uh, with their customer base, uh, their their financial uh, players like bankers, et cetera. I bet if they just did that for a year, they'd see transformational change over that 12 months. Do you agree with that? Certainly. And I, I would take it one step further and, and, um, you know, DCOM, direction, competence, opportunity, and motivation. Um, from a behavioral science perspective, the real magic in that is the M and the motivation. And and so I, I typically see two things with clients. One, they spend an awful lot of time, if, if they take the time, they're spending it on those upfront, um, from a behavioral perspective, we would, we'd call antecedents, direction, competence, and opportunity, right? Making sure they, they're clear in their messaging, People have the skills and they have the tools, but less on the motivation. And so a lot of the work I do is helping leaders to kind of dissect that and understand how do you create an environment 
where people want to give their best every day. Brilliant. Not seeking ways to do that. Brilliant point. And you are clairvoyant, Judy, because that leads to my next question. One of the frameworks, it is brilliant. And it's so brilliant. I've even had to go back and where did this research come from? Or what? what's the foundation for, and let me say it, ABC. And I'm going to let you say what ABC is. Uh, but but this whole concept of consequences is just mind bending to me. What I can hear, I can hear you. You're smiling. What is yep. ABC, and why is it critical? Yeah. So ABCs, uh, the ABCs are at the heart of the science of behavior. It comes from decades old research of behavior analysis. And it stands true in any behavior that we're talking about. Um, so if you've taken a, a Psychology 100 class, you've learned it there. Um, this is applying it to work. And, and ABC stands for antecedents or things that prompt or trigger the behavior. So, you know, the direction that you give, um, signs, um, expectations. If you do this, you'll get a better bonus at the end of the year. Um, the, all of those things are prompts that prompt the B, the behavior, and C is the consequences that follow the behavior. Now, from a science perspective, it's funny because my mom always used to say, you know, don't do that or there'll be consequences. And it was always negative. That's not true here. When from, from a scientific perspective, when we talk about consequences, we talk about the um, stimuli that follow the behavior. Some are positive, some are negative. It may reinforce the behavior and increase it, or it may punish and decrease it. So, so that's one thing that, that as, as you look at the ABCs, you kind of have to change your mindset, at least from you know my parents, <laughs> what I learned from my parents growing up. Consequences are both good and bad. Um, and understanding those, the, the, the real value um, comes from leaders understanding that the ABCs, that behavioral continuum happens whether you uh, all around you, whether you are explicit in understanding it or not. And so um, as a leader, as someone who is running an organization, as someone who is creating an environment for your employees or your team, it's important for you to understand um, the ABCs and to understand what you're doing to create either you know positive consequences or maybe inadvertently creating negative consequences. Let's make this very uh, practical. Let's say you're the the performance agility coach or the organizational agility coach. You're you're a hired guy and the consultant mm -hmm. for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Okay. Uh, and I don't know my U.S. hockey that well. Was it was it Lemieux who uh, was a great player uh, in Pittsburgh? Mario. He was. Yeah. Okay. Now it's Sidney Crosby. Now, oh, now the good name. So let's say Sydney is habitually late to practice, habitually late to practice. And the coach and the general managers say, can you work with him? How would you apply ABC to Mr. Crawford? Yeah, so, uh, so taking the ABCs, first look at the antecedents. What are the things that prompt or trigger that desired be that desired behavior of attending practice on time. You know, does, has is the practice time clear? You know, does he have the skills? Likely, if he's playing in the 
um, in the National Hockey League. He's got the ability to arrive on time, whether it's Uber or drive himself or, or you know, whatever, um, get a friend to drive him. Um, it's probably been pretty clear the time, but sometimes even in that scenario, it's, you know, we start at two, but what does that mean? Does that mean that you need to be on site at two, that you need to be on the ice fully geared up with sticks in hand already, you know, starting to warm up so that, you, you know, they can, they can start actual uh, exercises at two. So often, even um, in that, that first question, there's some ambiguity. And then on the back end, what are the consequences? And so, you know, um, from a consequence perspective, if two o'clock is the start to practice, but what that means is when you get there at two, everybody's kind of just roaming around, maybe, you know, finishing taping up their skates, having conversations, you know, maybe still in the locker room. So it's really 2.20 when everybody actually gets around to do things. You know what, if you're, if, if time is precious to you and, and you're not into small talk, you may not want to start to show up until after two o'clock so that you don't have to stand around and wait for, for practice to start. That's a negative consequence. That would be a consequence that would, would not help starting it too. Um, so that's kind of dissecting it in that way and really understanding from, again, from Sid's perspective, right. Or from that individual performer's perspective, do I have everything I need in order to engage in that behavior to arrive on time? And then when I do, what happens? Do good things happen? You know, do I feel good about it or do bad things happen? Am I less likely to show up on time? I just, I just love this concept because the A, it could be, I mean, once you start personalizing this, we could find out that, well, he takes his kids to school every day at a certain time and that's what's causing him to be late. It could, it may not be because he's, you know, he's, he's irresponsible or lacks discipline. And, and so now you've got, okay, now we got something to work with. Let's try to figure out how to make this work. And so this whole concept is just fascinating. I want to move on, Judy. The next one, you do need to look at the visual. We'll have this in the show notes, but let me try to paint a mental picture or image of it for the mind the organizational continuum. So I think of a bell-shaped curve that may be a little bit oblique and you've got an X axis and a Y axis. It is somewhat subjective, but explain the organizational continuum. Again, it's brilliant. Yeah. This is a way to look at the organization and understand where, where are folks across this continuum from if, and if you think about the far left side of being out of control to in control, to informed, involved, and engaged on the on the right hand side. Of course, ideally, what you want is engaged, and I would even say inspired people on that far right side. And you think about your employee groups. Um, at a minimum, involved, right? That's a you know that's still close to the right hand side. It it may be informed, but but you definitely don't want them on the left hand side, which is you know out of control, you know. Um, kind of whatever, you know, use whatever process you want, maybe come on time, maybe don't, you know, there's really no, there's really no common sets of procedures and policies in place. And it's kind of uh, feels like a free for all. We used this organizational continual, continuum at CN when we looked at the culture to ask, where is the culture at? Not from uh, an overall organizational perspective, we did do that. But, but location by location, because every location is different when you're talking about 
a company that has multiple locations, whether it's multiple locations in a state, in a you know country or continent or even globally. And so it helped us to, to understand, you know, if it's an out of control, if, if you're talking about an out of control situation, how do you help to move people to the right? You know, make it, first of all, move it, move more in control, get a little bit more control of policies and procedures, then inform people. Why are we doing these things? What's the value? What, you know, how do, how do you personally connect to the overall value that we're trying to achieve? How do we get you involved and then finally engaged? It's very hard to go from out of control to engaged in one step. I think before we move on, is it, well, I know the answer to this, but let me ask anyway, you've worked with an organization and they're getting it. You have great leadership and that, that, that curve is moving to the right. It's moving to the right and it's doing it in a very healthy way. Have you ever seen that same company maybe two years, three years later, where that curve starts shifting backwards uh, to the left? Sure. Yes. And, 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 and it could be because of a CEO change, a leadership change, or perhaps they just started getting lax. Uh, I guess it could be all of those, right? It could be. Yeah, it could be all of those because it really takes, in order to move, sustainably move to the right, you've got to work with with the large set of leaders across the organization. You've got to get a critical mass of people moving to the right. And if it's very leader dependent, whether that's local leaders, you know, corporate leaders, CEO, um, any of those, when that when the leader leaves, things kind of fall back into chaos a little bit, right? New leader comes in, people are kind of, well, okay, what's going to change? Is this going to be the same? Is it going to be different? And you can see you can see that slide happen. Um, sadly, I've seen that happen more often than not because that you know that that progress that was made was still heavily leader dependent and hadn't quite got baked into the framework of how people run day to day, and it wasn't sustainable. In the book, and I can't remember exactly where, but it's something that I just picked up on. And maybe it's because I work with so many different CEOs. When you guys, the consulting team is making their pitch to Hunter, he says, well, why know all this stuff? You know, I, I can do this. And I think somebody in your team, it may not have been you, Judy, but you said, well, you're, you're one of the 15. <laughs> Something, oh, he's one of the 15. <laughs> Then tell me about the other 85. Do you know the story or the section of the book? I mean, this is subtle, but it's like, I just picked up on it and it's like, yeah, he's part of the 15, but he he wasn't the one to teach this stuff or get it implemented. Talk about the 15 versus the 85. I know that's open-ended, but, but take a stab at it. Yeah, no, no, this is, um, so this was up front in the conversation in one of our conversations with Hunter, my, my colleague, Ned Morse was having this conversation with him and, um, he like many CEOs. So, you know, I've had this conversation multiple times, you know, um, was frustrated because he was saying this shouldn't be rocket science. Um, you know, we were, we were sharing an example of, um, helping, you know, improving performance, uh, through, um, one of the initiatives we called dressed and ready. Right. Just getting everybody dressed and ready to go at 7.30 a.m. for a 7.30 start to a shift. Um, seems like a no-brainer on the face of it, uh, but, but really understanding the 
the nuance um, was the key. But, you know, so in that conversation, like, you know, why don't people just do what they need to do? It's, you know, to, to Hunter and, and his business sense, and you talked about what a strong CEO he was, that was a no brainer. Like some of these things that we were working on across the company felt like we should not have to work on them to him. And that's what the folks who automatically get it, who know what to do, who, who see that logical connection are the 15%. And that's what uh, Ned was sharing with him. Like, yeah, yeah, you see it because you're in the 15%. 85% of leaders don't have that intuitive understanding of what to do, that intuitive understanding of consequences and connections and business sense. The other 85 have to learn it. And, and so it's so difficult because so many CEOs are in that space. That's one of the reasons that they've been so successful. Not the only reason, because a lot of people can learn a lot of things, but, you know, trying to talk to a senior leader who is one of the 15 about, about making some of these cultural changes is difficult because the rest of us, the 85% of us need that little bit of help, need those connections, need that clarity of direction need to hear things, you know, seven times before it kind of sinks in. Um, and so, uh, you know, as you think about, you know, where are you? Are you the 15 or the 85? It's helpful because if you're sitting in the 15, if you're often sitting in meetings and thinking, well, why is this just not common sense to people? Just remember, like, that's because it just because it's common sense to you. It's not common sense to 85% of the people around you. You've, Judy, you've got a very humble heart. Because there's another side to this 15%. There's a 15% that also recognizes I need help to do this other fill in the blank to get what I want accomplished. So in order for precision railroading to really take off and stick, he still needed this organizational agility that you could bring. So he, again, he was part of that 15% who gets it, but he could not do what you all did. And I'm, I still believe my heart of hearts, and I, I want to ask Howard Green this, would sin has been as successful without your all's work? And I think the answer is no. And I, I'm, I, I think I'm right on that. I'm not going to make you say that because, again, you're a very humble person. Uh, there's so much great imagery, and this may have come from sin internally, but the concept of spiking the switch is just awesome. I loved that section on what it means to spike the switch. I'll let you explain that. But then my real question is, what is your advice to CEOs like Hunter Harrison who need to spike the switch in their organizations or not-for-profits? Yeah. So spiking the switch um, in in the railroad um, industry is, you know, railroads have switches, so a train can go left or go right. And when you spike it, you turn it so that it goes, you know, it was going right, you spike the switch, it'll go left. So it allows you to move the train in a different direction, basically. And I am not a railroader um, by trade. So I, you know, share that just as there's better technical terminology, but that's the layman's (laughs) version of it. So, so we started picking up this spike, the switch, because everybody knew it. And it was very intuitive to everybody from the folks in the yard to the folks in the control room, to supervisors, to leaders, you know, we need to spike the switch on culture. We need to spike the switch on how we're 
performing in this way. And everybody could rally around that and get excited. And they knew that meant we need to change directions. Um, it became so salient in um, toward uh, the the last half of the culture change. I think they carried on quite a ways after we were gone. We literally got um, spikes, railroad spikes that, you know, would be engraved for folks when they did some very great um, spike the switch story. So when they made an impact, when they had a change, we would give them a spike, um, uh, like a you know metallic uh, spike with a little engraving on it as a memento. Again, not a lot of monetary value, but huge value and credibility um, and worth to say like, hey, we noticed what you're doing. You're making a difference for the railroad. Um, so for me, uh, you know, for people who are in this situation, who who have made progress on the technology front, on the process front, are still not able to get that behavioral change, the culture change that's kind of slowing you down and lagging you down, looking for that first step. Because um, culture change doesn't happen overnight, right? It's a very long process. It's a three to five year process overall. But there's work, there's quick wins that you can get in a matter of, you know, two months, three months. And so looking for, first of all, clarity in what you're trying to go after and then looking for ways to spike the switch. We had, you know, hundreds of spikes stories that we collected across the railroad, across across all of the different yards and facilities. And finding that first one or two to start to get momentum is a great way for you to kind of validate that you're on the right track, but also to start to show to the organization that this is the right way that we want to lead. Three to five years. I'm taking notes, Judy. <laughs> Hundreds, yeah. yeah, three to five. And that's going to be something that a lot of people don't want to hear, but I am agreeing with you 100%. It's, it, this is a marathon, not, not a sprint. And there are probably going to be a lot of consultants who say, well, you can do this in, you know, and I appreciate your honesty and clarity uh, on this. Yeah. I know this has yeah, been, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, just let me be really clear. I didn't say that as a consultant, you need to hire me for three to five years or anybody. <laughs> no, right? no, you, you this, made that, exactly. <laughs> three to five years for a leader, it's going to take you three to five years to get that sustainable ingrained culture change. But just like in switch points, within six months, our six month pilot, you know, across three sites, we did them simultaneously. We got immediate results enough to pay for ourselves and then some. So I say that longer that longer term is to build sustainability, but you can definitely find quick wins that within three, certainly six months, you can see some immediate return. Again, great point. I know the book was written some 10 years ago. Do you, do you ever check in on some of the people at CN? I know a lot of the leaders that you to work with have either retired or gone on to other positions, uh, promotions at other railroads. Uh, any of you still check in on? Yeah. Yeah. I do talk to, to a few folks throughout the organization. A lot of, um, you know, it's interesting. A, a lot of the leaders, as you said, have moved on, um, to, to other railroads. Many have retired. Um, makes me feel like maybe I should retire soon. But. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. But, um, it, but, uh, a lot of the, uh, executive team now were leaders that were part of this program, right? Because we worked with, you know, leaders 
that four levels deep in the organization. And so we really worked with hundreds of, of their leaders in, in this period of time. And, and I still, still stay connected with, you know, a, a few folks across the organization. And it's, it's kind of fun to watch, you know, how they've evolved through the different CEOs and the different changes in, in leadership. Judy, just a couple more questions. And I'm going to give you your hardest question right now. This is the hardest. You, you know that I've loved this book, Switch Points. I've been telling uh, peers about it. And for again, it, this this book has been, I, I've enjoyed it a lot. Here's the hard question. What are some other books out there similar to Switch Points, or can you think of any? So there's a couple books. Um, that, that there's three books that come to mind that that I absolutely love. Um, they are not, uh, you know, they're not the the um, story-filled culture change book that Switch Points is, um, but but they have their own, they have different value, right? So one of them, uh, which I'm sure everyone knows, is The Tipping Point with Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. Um, right? Love his book there. There's a lot of commonality if you read his book and you think about The Tipping Point, right? What were we doing in this culture change? We were trying to get to critical mass, to get to a tipping point where where it became just the way that we're working now. And so um, that's something that I tie back to when I think about culture change. Spiking the switch. Exactly, exactly. Um, the other is The Power of Habit. Great book. Great book. Um, again, you know, really, really good book uh, to think about habits, how they're created, culture, and a lot of performance, uh, you know, um, habits at work. So, you know, we all create habits both at home and at work. And so that's another book that I love when we're thinking about how do we actually change the way that we behave at work. And then you had a third one. Oh, the third one is nudge. Oh and yes. Uh, yeah. Richard Thaler. And that's taking the behavioral science and um, applying it to more from an economics perspective than a behavior analysis perspective, but still, you know, really, really powerful book in thinking again about those small incremental changes in order to get, you know, to the ultimate goal that you have. So how do you nudge? How do you create those behavioral nudges for change? Now, this is CFO Bookshelf. There's no way we can let you get away without finding out some of your favorite books. And again, these can be non-business related. They can be books that have influenced you and your career, uh, they can be books that you give away the most. Do, do you have any that are uh, favorites? Yeah, I have a couple. Um, so I am a big fan of Simon Sinek. Not sure, uh, you know, how much the the audience um, listens to him, but he, I, I love Start with Why. I give that away very frequently um, because I think it just underpins so much uh, of what we do. Um, there's another book, uh, uh, an economics book that I actually read for fun that, that I really enjoyed. It's a little bit older, George Friedman's The Next Hundred Years. That one I'm not familiar with. Yeah. So um, this was written a while ago, but basically it laid out, you know, over the next hundred years, how are things going to change around the geopolitical environment, um, energy and what's what's happening uh, with energy down the road and space exploration. And it um, had this amazing way of looking forward and giving you a sense for, you know, 
um, how, you know, sometimes we can get caught up in how, um, how crazy times are today and how detrimental, you know, what are seemingly actually small decisions, um, uh, you know, how detrimental they feel today. Well, this, this was just kind of an interesting kind of mind opening book for me that, that got me to think a little bit longer term and that, you know, many of these small decisions, seemingly small decisions are part of this larger, this larger view. So, um, I enjoyed it and made me kind of expand my thinking and, um, uh, just a good read. You did not pay me to ask this question. I, again, I love your work. I love the book so much. I want to plug the heck out of you. So where in the world, how, how can we find you? Uh, we will have links to your, your LinkedIn profile, obviously, but yeah. uh, what, what's the best way to reach out and learn more about your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so right now I am working at a company called Aspirant. Um, uh, it's a technology and management consulting firm. And so you can reach me there um, at judy.johnson at aspirant.com. Um, also, if you're interested in some of these, um, we've been doing a series that's out on YouTube uh, called Walk and Talk uh, series, which is um, if you if you look at it for Aspirant's Walk and Talk, uh, it's um, a couple of us at a time, literally walking and talking about things like um leadership and culture change and providing feedback and, you know, um, getting results and all sorts of kind of fun and different things. They're three to five minute conversations. And, um, some, I've, I've got a lot of good feedback that that can spark some ideas for folks. We'll have that in the show notes as well. I'm going to just nudge you. (laughs) I'm going to use a book title. I'm going to nudge you just a little bit. And I know you're busy, uh, but, you are very clear. Uh, you're, you're, I just enjoy hearing you talk about these concepts. Now, these frameworks, uh, I mean, there's intellectual property uh, that's protecting some of these concepts. But in your words, I would love to see you write a book, you know, 10 years after CN and then maybe what you've learned and still what is applicable uh, now and even 10, 100 years later. So I, again, just I'm just I'm just going <laughs> to give you the idea and you can run with it or <laughs> bury it if you want. Oh, thank you. It's a great idea. I um, Yeah. What you don't know is I I, I have started a few books, uh, but, you know, the, the trick is not to start them. The trick is to, to get them to closure. And so um, I, I, I love writing. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really a matter of taking a, uh, the focus to do that. So I, I would absolutely love to um, to write another book and or some version of a book. I feel like today, you know, um, so many people are, are looking for the, you know, the three minute, yes. five minute version of things that I may try to do something creative in that space as well. Judy, yeah. again, you are awesome. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Judy Johnson, thank you very much. One of the co-authors of Switch Points, probably the best book I've ever read on culture change. Knowing that you listen to this show, you're probably a 15 percenter, as Judy described earlier. Now, that means you get it when it comes to your company's objectives and strategies. The same could be said for technology, processes, and finances in your company. But what happens 
when you don't see the performance gains you're expecting? Well, 15 percenters, they think that everyone should get it too. And that's what Hunter Harrison thought when he was a CEO for Canadian National Railway. While his changes were making a difference, he still needed help improving the culture. And even if you're not in a management or a senior leadership position yet, read switch points. It's practical, it's sticky, and there are four main frameworks that you'll be able to apply for a lifetime. I won't mention all of them, but again, DCOM. DCOM is outstanding. Learn it, uh, use it, even apply it to yourself. And guys, don't forget the power of consequences in the ABC framework uh, that Judy explained in the show, which is described in much detail in the book. Hey, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. We'll be right back at you next week. Thank you.